all four Gospels soon after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus is betrayed by Judas, arrested by Roman soldiers, and immediately placed on trial in the middle of the night. In each Gospel, his disciples are with him when he is betrayed and arrested, and yet they fall away from him as he is led away. Two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, explicitly state all the disciples deserted him and fled. Alone among the Gospel writers, Mark then adds two verses immediately after this scene of desertion. Mark writes, A certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Only Mark makes mention of this young man. I would like us today to engage in a bit of detective work to see who this young man might be. I want us to review several theories across the century over which much ink has been spilled, much parchment written on, used, crumbled, and thrown away. I then want to propose a theory that I think can relate to us as we move from the Hosannas of Palm Sunday today to Friday's seven last words of Christ and then awaken to shouts of He is risen on Sunday morning. Let us pray. O Lord God, one of your scientists has remarked, God is in the details. In the details of this young man fleeing at the arrest of your son, lead us to see a glimpse of you that teaches us and challenges us. In the name of the one who was arrested that night, we pray. Amen. So who is this young man who is the last to flee the scene when Jesus is arrested? He may have been a bystander. Perhaps a teenager who was awakened from an early morning sleep by the sound of an arresting mob outside his window. Just as when I drove to the church at 6.30 in the morning and it was still dark, I saw lights from a fire truck in the next block up Enderby. And when I turned left and came down Cameron Mills, there were blue lights and a tow truck with a car that had been hit. Naturally, I stopped and looked. Perhaps this young man was a bystander looking at the noise of the crowd, and then mistaken as a follower of Jesus by those who were arresting his disciples. He may have, in fact, been a recent unnamed follower of of Jesus, not a disciple, but someone who had recently heard Jesus preaching and teaching, who had witnessed his healing, and who, like the disciples, had left all to follow Jesus. The young man may have been someone Jesus had brought in close at hand. 
to be initiated into the life of faith, a new disciple that Jesus himself was mentoring. On another level, this young man may have actually been the author of the Gospel of Mark, who wrote himself into his Gospel narrative, just as Alfred Hitchcock made cameo appearances in 37 of his films. And as Rembrandt likely painted himself into one of his most famous paintings, The Night Watch. In addition to these real-life possibilities concerning who this young man might be, it is possible as well that he assumes a symbolic role in the Gospel of Mark. For example, this young man may lead us to recall from Genesis the early days in Pharaoh's court when Joseph, who was also a young man, is accosted by Potiphar's wife, flees her entreaties so as not to offend her husband, his master, and then leaves his robe grasping in her hand. More broadly speaking, this young man may represent every one of us Christians who, when we undergo baptism, shed one life, one garment, and are reclothed in another life, another garment. On the other hand, he may stand in contrast to Jesus' disciples who had left everything to follow Jesus while he leaves everything to flee. Or finally, this young man may be one of three of Jesus' followers who Mark in his writing fleshes out to show the specific ways in which the disciples let Jesus down, thus adding to Judas' betrayal And to Peter's denial, this young man's fleeing into the shadows. It is amazing the possibilities which preachers and teachers, scholars and ordinary readers of the Bible have come up with over the centuries concerning who this young man is and how he might speak to us. But now let's go back to Alfred Hitchcock for a minute. Between 1927 and 1976, Hitchcock made 52 films that are still in existence. In 39 of these films, Hitchcock himself makes a cameo appearance, lasting only a few seconds, usually as only only a minor character without a speaking part undoubtedly unnoticed by most moviegoers. Sometimes Hitchcock walks across a scene carrying a musical instrument. Often he is using public transportation, boarding a bus, riding a train, attempting to board a bus. Occasionally he appears as a passerby in a public place, a train station, an airport, a crowded city sidewalk. Most of Hitchcock's cameos appear early in the movies, and in some he appears to be seeking to teach his audience, his moviegoers, such as those in which, with his rather round frame, he is sitting on a train reading a newspaper, the back of which is open 
to the audience as an ad for a weight loss company. <laughs> it is a teaching moment. Hitchcock's appearances in his own films come to mind because there is a serious strand of New Testament scholarship that considers it a possibility that the young man fleeing in Mark's gospel is in fact the author of Mark, who places himself in the gospel he writes in a concealed yet noticeable way so as to lead us, his readers, to receive a message, a message that is perhaps even deeper but no less important than losing weight. If this is the case, what might Mark's message be to us, his readers, through this cameo appearance in his gospel? On one level, it's pretty clear that if Mark is writing himself into this story, Mark is making a confession and thereby is holding up for us the value of confession. Mark is confessing to himself, to God, and to his readers. As we said earlier, that though he, like the other disciples before him, had left all to follow Jesus, he is confessing that at the moment of Jesus' arrest, at one of the most crucial turns in Jesus' life, Mark, By writing this in his gospel, Mark is engaging in self-examination. By writing this in his gospel, Mark is being honest with himself. By writing this in his gospel, Mark is being honest with God. And by writing this in his gospel, he is being honest with us, his readers, That though he was a well-intended follower of Jesus, when the chips were down, when the arrest was made, when the crucifixion was just around the corner, Mark was no more faithful than Peter, who denied Jesus, and then Judas, who betrayed him. If we take this lesson about confession and step back from the story a bit, we are reminded that there is value in confession, in being honest with God, in being honest with ourselves, in being honest with the people with whom we are the closest. Just as faithful Catholics enter a confessional booth to make private confession before partaking of the body and blood of Christ, just as we join fellow congregants every worship service in making corporate confession of our sin before hearing the word of God proclaimed and responding with our offerings and being sent to service in the world. So also Mark is confessing his flight into the shadows during one of the most important moments of Jesus' life, the Christ he has committed to follow. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Mark 
is reminding us of the value of confession. But in addition, by writing himself into the gospel that bears his name, Mark is also telling us that confession is not the final word. Because even as Mark is honest with us about his own shortcoming, he subtly calls us not to repeat the sin that he has committed. Along these lines, there is an interesting strand of scholarship that connects this young man fleeing into the shadows in Mark's gospel with a passage in the Old Testament prophecy of Amos, a passage that I had never noticed before until preparing this sermon. In this passage, which is found in Amos 2, a chapter in which God is announcing judgment first on the nations and then on God's own people, the people of Israel, judgment for their failure and unfaithfulness, God speaks to his people Israel by saying, I will press you down in your place just as a cart presses down when it is full of sheaves. Flight shall perish from the swift, God says. The strong shall not retain their strength. Those who handle the bow shall not stand. Those who are swift of foot shall not be able to save themselves. Nor shall those who ride horses save their lives. And then God says through Amos, those who are stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked on that day. Now, whenever we hear words such as these from prophecy, from Old Testament prophecy, they can be so threatening and filled with punishment that it looks like there's absolutely no hope, absolutely no escape, absolutely no way out. But the reality is that by repeating intensely and graphically the threat of punishment, the prophet is saying, if you will listen and change what you are doing, maybe, just maybe, God will relent. Thus, when Amos says to the people of Israel, those who are stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked, Amos is ironically saying, those of you who are stout of heart and who will use your stoutness of heart to turn to God and do what God is calling you to do, shall not flee away naked. When the author of Mark writes himself into his gospel as the one who flees away naked, you see, I think he is subtly referencing this passage from Amos. I think Mark is saying that he has learned from his own failure. And I think he is calling his beloved readers in his day and across the centuries, including us who read him today, to keep our stoutness of heart to hold on to our courage, to use it, and not to flee into the shadows in fear. Hemingway famously described courage as grace under pressure. 
Amos describes it as stoutness of heart. In confession, the writer of Mark revealed for us a time in which his stoutness failed, a time in which he did not show courage so that our stoutness of heart may not fail when the times call us for courage. Mark, in fact, is confessing and he is calling us to courage. This is his message to us through these two sentences about this one disciple fleeing away naked. Confession and courage. I need not remind you that these are times in which we yearn for both confession and courage in our national life, in our politics, in our workplaces, in our marriages, our relationships, our families. We are at times today seeing great examples of human courage, many inspired by God, and we are seeing great examples of cowardice, of people who take their stoutness of heart with them and flee from the scene. We know from the rest of the story of the Gospels that when, Jesus, that when Judas betrays Christ, he ends out taking his own life. And we know that when Peter denies Christ, he ends out returning and being rehabilitated and becoming the first major leader of the church. It's always worth wondering what would have happened had Judas not taken his life, but had returned like Peter, would he too have been rehabilitated? Concerning this young man who fled into the shadows, unlike Judas and unlike Peter, we don't know with a certainty what happened to him. If he was indeed the author of the Gospel of Mark, we do know that he left us his book and his teaching. And that in itself is an accomplishment. But even if he is not the author of the Gospel in which he appears, while it may be that we never see him again, it may be that his fleeing into the shadows was actually not his last appearance in the gospel. Now, I know next week is Sunday, and a few of you are planning to come. Next week is Easter, and a few of you are planning to come. And I know all of you who will be traveling are planning to attend worship somewhere else. And I feel a little bit sad for you because if you come here, we'll spend a little time figuring out 
what may have happened to the guy who fled into the shadows.